What's up, guys? It's me, Heather. I'm back with another episode of my Strike Boat audiobook podcast on Substack. Today is January 28th, 2022. I did take yesterday off from uploading an episode of this podcast because I went with my son to the Freedom Convoy in London, Ontario, and we rolled with the convoy and we took the day off from podcasting as a result. But uh, I just want to say for the record that what we witnessed there yesterday was amazing. Um, it started, we got to the overpass. The convoy was heading down the 401 towards us. It was still a ways off. We were amongst the first to arrive at that overpass. We went to Highway 73. And what happened was when we first got there, people were shy, people were hesitant, people were timid, people were avoiding eye contact, not smiling at each other, even though we were gathering without masks, probably for the first time in many cases in a very long time, at least in those kind of numbers. And then just gradually the place exploded with people. It filled up that interchange. Cars up and down both sides of the highway. People getting out of the cars with smiles of disbelief and joy on their faces. Coming up that overpass, smiling at each other, waving Canada flags, hugging, laughing, cheering every truck that rolled under us, honking. Little kids, like two and three years old, gazing around at themselves in wonder, probably never having seen that many people, strangers, smiling at them before. It was incredible. Uh, We watched for a while from the overpass. We cheered for a while from the overpass. And then uh, my son and I felt motivated to get in the car and actually join the overpass or join the convoy sorry so that's what we did we rolled with the freedom convoy through just east of london ontario for a few exits and every overpass we saw was packed and i'm just so humble and grateful that we got to see what we saw there yesterday the people united can never be defeated that's the way it feels and i hope that i'm right and you know i just want to also comment that it is not lost on me that i was to record the episode yesterday that i'm about to record today which takes place on an overpass um with truckers and factory workers and um Yeah, it's crazy that this is all happening in real time. And um, Anyway, what I'm going to do today, chapter 14, is called Reconfiguring. It is a long chapter. I am going to break it into two chapters. So today and tomorrow's episodes will be part one and two of chapter 14, Reconfiguring. And as I read this out, I know that Canadians will be gathering today and tomorrow as well on overpasses all along the convoy route. And I just, uh, I'm I'm here marveling. I'm just marveling that this is all happening. So with that, let's get started on part one of chapter 14, 
reconfiguring. In the box of the pickup, Vic rose up on his toes and peered over the cab toward the overpass. From his position, he could see the backed up traffic, but not the sinkhole. Nothing on the 402 was moving. He held up his hands for silence, then called out to the crowd. Okay, listen up. You all saw what just happened here. The slideshow is true. The place is going to flood. People in the crowd were nodding. Others stood with their arms crossed over their chests. Some were crying. Worry and alarm hung over the crowd. Vic cleared his throat. I know what you're thinking. If you're anything like me, you're thinking that you need to get the hell out of here. Go home. Pack up your family. Get them to safety. And I get that. Believe me. But there's only two main roads that people can take to get out of the flood zone. And that's the 401 and the 402. Sims just told me something back there before we left. He said the 402 is gridlocked. It got backed up with parts trucks when we stopped the line, and now no one can get through. Kimmy Pembleton held up her smartphone. It isn't just the trucks. There's a sinkhole in the median underneath the overpass. Roads caving in. Inside lanes in both directions have been swallowed up. Blake Davis just texted me this picture. They're in their carpool vehicle waiting in the traffic jam. Vic reached down and held his hand out. Mind if I take a closer look at that? Kimmy gave it to him. The photo showed the sinkhole, jagged, arc-shaped chunks of pavement missing from both inside lanes around a gaping indentation in the median. Vic showed it to Deb. That way doesn't look too safe. She frowned. Vic, this can't be happening. People need to leave to get outside the flood zone. That won't happen if Highway 402 is blocked. Vic nodded. I know. But what can we do? It isn't like we have a backhoe to move those vehicles around. Deb looked out over the sea of workers. We might not need a backhoe. We've got an army, she thought. A sideways grin broke out across her face. She handed the phone back to Kimmy, then clapped her hands for attention. People, brothers and sisters of the United Auto Workers Union Local 88, we've got a situation. You all came through for Vic and me back there, and I'm hoping that you'll do it one more time. She paused and took a couple breaths, satisfied herself that they were listening. The people we've been working for were liars. They were liars, and they were thieves, and they did something bad with our hard work. They used us to turn our own land into a time bomb. This land is going down, my friends. People need to leave, or they will die. And right now, the way to safety has been blocked. It's blocked by the very trucks that feed this monster of a plant that's ruined all our homes and every other plant along this corridor, because that's the way these capitalist bastards roll. Brothers and sisters, history is going to look back negatively on this plant and on the cars we made and on the fracking that they used to get the gas to run them. But history doesn't have to look back negatively on us. There might be something we can do to help the situation, something that will help the people that we love get through to safety. We're going to have to work together harder than we've ever worked together before. But if we do it, if we try, then maybe we can clear that road and get the traffic flowing again.
There are enough of us. If we go to the overpass and use our combined strength and muscles to move whatever it is that we have to move to do it, we might be able to clear a path. I don't know about you, but I say we let the final united act of Local 88 be a heroic one so that history will remember that even though our bosses were corrupt, the people who worked here were good. Are you with me? A roar of approval went through the crowd. Deb heard the cheers and whistles. Well, all right then, let's go see what we can do. Deb hopped down from the truck. Vic jumped down beside her. They could see the blocked overpass just a few football fields away, and they started towards it. The workers followed right behind them, some of them rolling up their sleeves, pulling work gloves out of pockets and putting them on. At the back of the pack, Abdul Jams felt a glimmer of hope as he felt in line behind them. Jamie Sinclair grabbed Morty's arm. We need to film this, she said. Morty nodded, but he was frowning. I'll need the van. I've got to swap cameras. This one's almost dead. Jamie bit her lip. If we run, maybe we can get the van in time and follow the crowd to see what happens. Morty held up the heavy camera he was carrying. I can't run with this thing. And besides, my running days are over. He patted his ample belly. Jamie grinned. Maybe not, but I can. I run every day. Give me the keys. I'll pick you up on the shoulder over there. Morty handed them to her. She took off her high heels and gripped them in one hand. Clutching the keys in the other, she broke into a sprint, running lightly across hundreds of yards of parking lot, tan legs flashing beneath her navy pencil skirt. She came to a ditch and leapt it, feeling a wave of heady freedom as she landed lightly on the other side before crossing another thousand feet of parking lot to reach the van. When she got there, she wasn't even winded. She felt great, actually. Marvelous. Alive. She climbed behind the wheel and buckled in, then turned the engine on and backed out of the parking spot. She could see Morty trudging up the shoulder of Hickory Road with his camera hanging down beside his legs. But with the gridlocked vehicles, there was no way to get to him unless she went off-road. She put the van in gear and eased it up over the curb, then drove across that Fallon plant's sprawling lawn to pull up right beside him. Hop in, she said. I'll get us as close as I can to the action. The Fallon workers had reached the overpass. They stood in a mass, surveying the damage caused by the sinkhole and discussing what to do amongst themselves. Jamie found a place to park the van on the grass slope behind the, beside the overpass. Morty switched his camera out for a lighter, more portable one as Jamie radioed the newsroom to let them know she had another story unfolding. And then the two of them walked up the slope to go and join the knot of workers who seemed to be the ones organizing. Hey folks, what's the situation? Jamie held the mic to Victor. Vic took in the fact that the camera was rolling. He held his arm out and pointed down the westbound lanes of the 402 to the east of them. Traffic coming out of London's backed up that way, leading to the overpass. There's a slew of parts trucks stranded on the off-ramp, waiting to turn onto Hickory here. But as you can see, this way is also blocked. It's not safe to try and go around, 
that sinkhole there is getting larger. He pointed the other way, to the west of them. On this side, traffic's backed up this way, coming out of Sarnia and the States. He looked into the camera. That's the way that people need to go to get to safety. So we need to get this traffic moving. He paused to catch his breath and looked down for a moment and a look of helplessness washed over him as he took in the muddy mess that was below the overpass. He shook his head. What we're witnessing is the catastrophic failure of supply chains. What it really does point out is that the present day version of modern industry operates at a lunatic pace, one that we don't even notice until the wheels start coming off. That's what happened here. When Fallon shut the plant down, we came outside and found we're pretty much stuck here. There's at least a thousand of us Fallon workers stranded here, maybe more like two because the afternoon shift was trying to come in. They're stranded in that deadlock as well, and we all need to get home to our families. We can't get our vehicles out of the plant, roads blocked in all directions. So we came up to the overpass to see if we can figure out a plan. The problem is that sinkhole underneath the overpass. People can't get through that way because as we're standing here, chunks of pavement keep on falling in around the edges. So it's getting wider. If nothing else, it's proof of what they've done, the damage that the fracking caused. Morty zoomed in on the sinkhole. The footage that he sent to the newsroom depicted a divided highway, two lanes running in each direction with the grass buffer in between, except the whole thing had a mud bog in the middle of it that stood out, glaringly obvious. Vehicles were scattered this way and that around it as drivers stuck in the traffic jam tried to wiggle their way away from it, backing as far from the risk as they possibly could the wall of impermeable traffic jam in all directions surrounding them. Every way was blocked, every road converging in a giant cluster centered around the sinkhole. The grass median was gone. The surface layer of the pavement was falling away. On the far side of the hole, the gray skin of pavement lay along the top of what looked like a sand bank, angling down to the bottom of the sinkhole where there was a swill of brown water the last of the pickup truck still visible above the dirty surface. As he filmed, a loud gurgle sounded from the sinkhole and a minor tremor started. The liquid in the sinkhole suddenly drained, revealing a wide black maw at the bottom which gaped like an open mouth. The truck disappeared down into it, swallowed whole. There was no telling how deep the blackness was. Suddenly and unmistakably, the smell of sulfur arose like a sigh out of the open black hole, almost as though the earth itself was belching. Morty captured all of this, then he panned the camera so that Vic was in the viewfinder, shaking his head sadly. I never thought I'd see a thing like what just happened here. Anyone who doesn't believe that slideshow might want to take a real good look. Vic looked into the camera. This is the second one of these I've seen today. There's another one on Hickory, off to one side in a cornfield. People are telling me that there's sinkholes like this all over this area. I can't tell people what to do, but I know one thing. If you're inside the evac zone, you need to seriously start thinking about getting out. 
If you come to something like that in your travels, go around it. Go as wide as you can, but get around it and keep going. This area is going to flood. And for a lot of people, the 402 is the quickest way to get to safety. So what we're going to do, us workers here, the ones that just got kicked out of the plant that did this, these workers from United Auto Workers Local 88, who had no idea that this is what our bosses were up to, we're going to figure out a plan to get around this thing. We're going to move these barriers, do what we have to do to get the traffic flowing again so that people can get through to head for safety outside the evac zone. He stopped talking, looked at Jamie. That about covers it, ma'am. I'm going over there to get started. Thanks. Jamie watched him walk off, then turn face on to the camera with the sinkhole at her back. Well, there you have it, folks. A massive sinkhole blocking traffic, but the workers from the Fallon plant are going to try to clear a way around it. We'll keep you updated as the story develops. Back over to you in the studio. Morty filmed another few seconds, then paused the recording. Are we clear, Jamie asked him, and Morty nodded. We're clear. Good. Let's set up over there, along the shoulder, out of the way. I think that people will want to see this. People's lives depend on getting this traffic moving again. She looked down at the sinkhole doubtfully. I wish them luck. Lawrence Fallon threw open the door to the roof and burst out into the sunshine. He was breathing hard. The climb to the roof of the plant had been more than 100 feet high, and he was out of shape. He waited with his hands spread out on their metal railing, head hanging down between his shoulders for his breath to return to normal. When he was calm, he felt in his pockets for his cocaine, then recalled that he'd been forced to give it to Doucette. Christ, he muttered. He squinted into the sunshine for a moment, then patted his pockets again. He found his sunglasses, put them on. Luck was with him on something, at least. He lit a smoke, cupping his hands around the lighter to protect it from the wind that blew across the roof peppering his face with small particles of grit from the asphalt surface. He took a long pull and then exhaled, squinting through the sunlight and the smoke. He looked toward the overpass. From his vantage point, it was possible to see the train wreck unspooling that was the end of just-in-time supply chains. There were transport trucks and cars and other vehicles tangled in a sprawl around all four sides of the cloverleaf. People stood in throngs, scratching their heads, gesticulating. Heat waves shimmered above the pavement and parked vehicles. It was a mess, all right. With what he knew of manufacturing logistics, he took a moment to think about the likelihood that a similar situation would be unfolding at every interchange, up, all up and down the 401 corridor, as a just-in-time rolling warehouse inventory delivery system ground to a halt. What a cluster, he muttered, scrubbing a hand through his hair, then thought, good, maybe it will slow Cochran down. That would be nice, because if Cochran caught him, he was going to kill him. Fallon knew this. Cochran would know by now that the thing at the plant had turned into a shit show. That footage of him handing Doucette his gun had been filmed, for fuck's sakes, and he'd been recognizable in the footage. The fracking aside, there was footage of the fox shooting at those people, and there was footage of Fallon arming him. 
that could put the fox in jail, or at least it would cost Cochrane a lot of headache and time and money to orchestrate an alternative outcome. Cochrane needed the fox. He was his number one enforcer. Who knew how many people had seen that footage by now? Then that one chick had come out with that shit about Preston and Fallon had lost what little of his cool he'd had left. His culpability had been almost palpable, a fact which also would not sit well with Eric Cochran. The only thing that could save him was the arrival of the helicopter he had ordered, which would bring him to the safety of the southern continent where he could hide out in relative obscurity, hopefully for long enough that Cochrane would cool off. He settled into wait beside the red Lucite H insignia of the helipad, glancing at his watch with the sun beating down on his head. It had only been five minutes since he called for the helicopter. It would be a while yet before it came. He looked toward the highway. A crowd of his workers were heading toward it, en masse, on foot. He shook his head, wondering how things could have gotten so out of control so fast. Prickles of anxiety danced along his spine. All he wanted to do was get inside the chopper where he would be safe, then go get Jacinta. Fuck it, they could skirt the coastline all the way down, hide out along the edges of the radar if they had to. A briefcase full of cash could buy you a lot of things at the smaller airstrips. They could frog hop their way down and be almost undetectable. Being undetectable, that was now priority numero uno. He sighed, put his hand to his head, and rubbed his temples. He was fucked, and he knew it, and the only choice that he had left was to run. He leaned back against the metal railing, shrugged out of his suit jacket, and rolled up the sleeves of his shirt. He sat perched on the top of the factory that for a brief and storied portion of his time on this earth had been one of the most celebrated auto plants in the world. He didn't stop to wonder what would have happened if he'd actually gone about it ethically. He just watched as the last few workers trickled out of the employee parking lot on foot, leaving it empty leaving behind the lines of thrusts in various stages of completion, never to be worked on again. It was starting to feel like his jig was up. Now that he'd made an idiot of himself on TV and burned his bridges with Cochrane, he would not be a part of whatever recovery initiatives the flag board undertook to profit from the situation, and that sucked. World's shittiest morning, he said feeling very sorry for himself. Then he balled up his suit jacket and tucked it between his spine and the metal bars of the railing, settling in to wait for the chopper. Deb was looking around her. The situation was patently hopeless, but there had to be a way around the roadblock, and she was going to find it. There were plenty of people milling about, sitting on the hoods of their cars or leaning up against the bumpers in small groups. Somebody needed to take charge. There was an undertone of worried anxiety hovering over top of everything, and the odd, ominous thumber, rumble underneath their feet wasn't helping. She took a closer look at the vehicles, most of which were sitting with their doors, or at least their windows open. Some were clearly commuter vehicles that had been held up on their way to God knew where, 
but a lot of the vehicles were heavily laden with people's belongings. Those ones know there's a flood coming, she thought. Somehow, they had gotten the message and were trying to make their way out of the evac zone toward whatever awaited them on the other side. That was good, she reflected, but not if they were gridlocked and couldn't get out. She eyed the backlog of traffic again doubtfully. There had to be a way to get things moving. At the entrance to the backed-up off-ramp, a transport truck bearing the logo of the company that made dashboard instrument panels for Fallon sat with its right turn signal flashing as as though there was any possibility of getting off the westbound lanes of the 402 and onto the off-ramp anytime soon. The driver sat with his door open, watching Deb as she looked around, strategizing. She caught him staring at her. When their eyes met, he hopped down from his truck and came over. What y'all thinking? He stuck out his hand to Deb, and she shook it. Name's Justin. Hey, Justin, I'm Deb, and this is Vic. We ain't thinking much right now except trying to get a path around the blockage so that people can get moving. Justin scratched his head. Don't look too bad that way if you can clear the way around the exit lane. He pointed under the overpass. Vic filled him in. Can't get through. There's a sinkhole under the overpass. Road's all falling in. It's not safe. Justin's eyes widened and he gave a low whistle. They could see he was thinking as he adjusted his ball cap and turned to take in the whole area. He was a young man of about 25, and he'd been watching both the slideshow and the live newsfeed from the CBC while he'd been waiting in his rig. Might be best to block that way completely then, so that people don't try driving through there, eh? Deb could see what he meant. Go on, she said. How? Justin pointed to the side of the road beside his rig. You see those concrete barriers between the outside lane and the off-ramp there? Deb did. The off-ramp lane was barricaded on the shoulder by four-foot sections of concrete on either side, molded into a thigh-high barrier to act as a guardrail to prevent people from swerving off the exit lane onto the shoulder. Yeah, I see them. What about them? I seen a video on YouTube once. It was in India. There was a bunch of teenagers. They wanted to see if they could move a thing like that by hand. took about 20 of them, but they did it. He met Deb's eyes. If you all could move a couple of them barricades, push them outwards, give me a little bit of room, I bet you I could turn my truck enough to put her sideways across the westbound lanes here, block them off so people don't attempt to drive through and get stuck in yonder mud hole. Deb looked at the Fallon workers standing in groups close by. They were strong. They were muscular and fit from working the assembly line. The plant didn't pay them to stand around idle. When the Fallon lines were running top speed, these people worked. They put their whole bodies into the effort, and they worked as a team. It occurred to Deb that workers like these, they could probably do exactly the kind of thing this Justin guy was talking about. She looked at Vic. What do you think? I think we should give it a try. There were a couple of other team leaders standing nearby. Vic jogged over and talked to them. He told them about Justin's idea to move the barriers. It's not much of a plan, he remarked, gesturing at the concrete barriers, but it's all we've got at the moment. 
if it works, we might be able to get people moving again, get you guys back to your homes and your families so you can make whatever decisions you need to make about evacuating. You guys want to try it? Artie Deesbrex nodded. He was the leader of a team that put the rocker panels on. There were 10 on his team altogether. Might as well, he said. Best plan we got right at the moment. My teenage daughters are home alone and they're scared. There's a big sinkhole opened up across the road from our house. I need to get home to them. Deb placed a hand on his arm. I'm so sorry, babe. If this works, if we can move the barriers, maybe we can move enough of them after that to open up a path around the overpass by linking up with the on-ramp on the other side. Artie shrugged. I'll try anything at this point. Worth a shot. All right. Vic hopped up on the concrete barrier and gave a whistle. Hey, local lady eight, he called. Round up. He waited while the workers made their way to him through the backed up vehicles. When there was a crowd of them gathered around the concrete barrier, he stood upon. He put his hands around his mouth so they could hear him. Listen up. We're going to break into our teams. Follow your team leader's instructions. The rest of you are going to stay here and push these barriers backward. Deb will walk you through that part. Kimmy and I will take Kimmy's team this way and see if we can get the drivers of these first few rows of cars here to wiggle backwards as much as they can. Give us some room. He vaulted down and went to stand beside Kimmy Pembleton. Kimmy rounded up her team for a huddle. All right, Team 27, listen up. We've got a job to do. I want you to disperse through these vehicles, talk to the drivers, see if you can get them to shift backwards as much as they can. This way. She led her team over to the front of the row of deadlocked vehicles, and the 15 or so people that made up her team fanned out and started moving through the backlog, explaining things to the drivers. There was the sound of ignition starting, and Vic put a hand on Deb's arm. You got this. Just get us as much room as you can. Get the way cleared. I'll work on this end. See if we can get this traffic lined up to follow through once you guys open a path. Deb reached up and gave him a quick kiss. Okay, see you on the flip side. Vic grinned, then jogged off after Kimmy. Soon the cars at the back started moving. There was a series of maneuverings with Kimmy and her team filtering amongst the vehicles on foot coordinating and choreographing, and eventually freeing up a little space. I'll take the first concrete section, Deb. Artie Deesbricks forked two fingers into his mouth and whistled, not waiting for Deb to reply. Hey, rocker panels, you all are with me. Let's go. He waved his first two fingers in a circular motion, then pointed at the first concrete barrier. The 20 or so Fallon workers on his team went to join him. A man named Ed stepped forward. Hey, Chassis 2, he yelled. We're next. Come on, let's line up and get ready. The Chassis 2 workers separated off and clustered a short distance behind Artie's team, who were arranging themselves around the barrier. Deb turned to Justin. How much room do you think you'll need? As much as they can give me. The barricade will slide on gravel, but it's going to be a different thing on grass. If they can push it as far as the grass shoulder, I'll be happy. Artie gave a yell, and his team started pushing. They were crouched along the concrete barrier, 
hunkered down, working together to try to move the thing backward, but it weighed a ton. They got it to move just a little, but their work boots kept sliding on the scatter of gravel on the roadside. Chassis too, Ed called from behind them. They need help. Stand behind their work boots. Brace them. Give them something to push against. Ed went up behind one of the tire install workers, wedging his heavy work boots sideways behind the heels of the guy doing the pushing. He leaned forward. You can do this. You're a tank, Jason. I got you. Keep pushing. The rest of Ed's team followed suit, bracing and supporting the rocker panel team and calling out encouragement as they gave a monumental effort forward. The barrier moved. It was really something to witness. The rocker panel team straining and laboring as the chassis two team leaned in behind them, shoring them up, providing support. Teamwork at its finest, Deb thought, feeling a moment's pride in her fellow workers. No, it's bigger than that, she thought. This is humanity working together for the good of all. I'm glad I got to see this today. It was nice, she reflected. This had been a day that had tested her faith in humanity. But there were still good people out there. The workers pushed until the concrete barrier section hit the grass strip and stopped dead, just as Justin had predicted that it would. It was, least, it was at least a few feet wide at its base, and Justin vaulted up into the cab of his truck and stuck his head out through the open window. Tip it over, he shouted. That'll give me another couple feet. All right, you heard him, Artie shouted. You guys did great. You got one final job to do, and then you take a rest, I promised. All we got to do is tip this mother over on the grass. Let's do it. His team got low, braced against their fellow workers, and gave another monumental push. The concrete barrier toppled, its flat bottom side effectively becoming a new barrier, about eight or ten feet outside of where the barrier had originally stood. Good job, guys. Hardy slapped a few of his workers on the back, patted their shoulders. You guys did great. I'm proud of you. Next, it was Ed's team's turn. As they maneuvered themselves into position, another team lined up behind them to act as their stabilizers. Meanwhile, cars on the expressway were still inching backwards under Kimmy's team's direction. When the second barrier has been repositioned alongside the first, Justin called down to Deb. I think I got enough room now. I'm going to give her a try. Deb held the workers back out of his way, and Justin started up his engine. It took him a while. He cranked the wheel to the right, nosed the front end of his rig into the new gap they had created, and then reversed, straightened out, and started forward again. He had to inch the big rig forward and back what seemed to Deb to be about a thousand times, but he managed it. He got the big rig oriented sideways, perpendicular to the westbound lanes, and then he backed up, sliding it into place across the two lanes, blocking traffic so that people would not be able to go forward and fall into the sinkhole. The beginnings of a path could be seen. Grinning, Deb realized she could easily see what had to be done next, and she jogged forward to make it so. On the shoulder of the highway, Morty was capturing everything on film. 
Jamie was doing a voiceover. We're here in Mount Bridges where a sinkhole has opened up in the middle of the 402, blocking traffic. A sea of vehicles who are trying to make their way out of the projected flood zone have been halted in their tracks, and with all the trucks on this very heavily congested chunk of highway, which serves the Ontario Manufacturing Corridor, traffic has come to a standstill. What you're seeing here are stranded workers from the now-closed Fallon plant physically moving concrete barriers by hand in order to open up a route of passage. It truly is magnificent to watch. She finished her voiceover and turned off her mic, waiting for Morty to capture his shot. When he had, and he lowered the camera, she looked at him. We need the chopper. We're getting some really great close-up footage down here. But wouldn't it be great to film it from the air when they get things moving? Morty nodded. It would. Jamie pulled out her cell phone. I'm going to call for it, see if the network will send it to us. Morty swung his camera back up onto his shoulder to film the next crew of Fallon workers moving a barricade. The workers had already moved forward by this point and were on their way to rerouting the overpass. They had begun to create what was effectively a second lane around the stranded vehicles on the off-ramp. Once they were finished, if it all worked out, traffic would be able to get off the highway and travel up that new lane to where it intersected with the median on Hickory Road. The workers would have to move those barricades as well, reconfiguring the overpass to open up a path. But once they had, the vehicles would be able to cross through the median on Hickory Road and go down on the on-ramp on the other side and back onto the 402 skirting the sinkhole. They had moved four barrier sections on this side, and the way was almost wide enough for vehicles to start getting through. There was one more barricade to move, and a team from the door lines got into position. They hunkered down and got into position. <laughs> so I better edit that last part out. Sorry, guys. All right, one more section. And I'm going to be done for today. I think I will do one more section and then I'll end it. Jenna was in the council chambers, resting in one of the big plush chairs, when she heard the noise of a helicopter approaching. Lodi bolted to his feet. He crossed the room, went into a crouch by the window. He held a hand, palm out, and met Jenna's eyes. She felt herself relax a little letting go some of the tension she hadn't even realized she'd been holding. The noise of the rotor blades got louder, drowning out every other sound, and Jenna suddenly understood that the machine was coming down behind the building. A gust of wind blew in through the open window. It picked up a stack of the most recent council meetings, printed agendas, and scattered them all over the room. There was a twinge of fear in Jenna's gut, her heart hammered. Bad news, she chewed her thumbnail, looking hard at Lodi, but he was watching out the window. It's picking up Doucette. He's getting in right now. Looks like they're going to lift off. Get down. Lodi roared this last, sprawling on the floor himself. Terrified, the others did the same, and Jenna's heart gave a sickening lurch as a shadow fell inside the room. The noise and the wind from the rotors was overwhelming. 
A burst of machine gun fire shattered what was left of the window glass and much of the brick surrounding. Bullets shredded the white projection screen that hung on the opposite wall of the room. Jenna screamed and screamed as the shots whizzed by over top of her, but she couldn't hear herself. She covered her head with her arms as shards of glass and brick rained down into her hair, and then Lodi was there. He grabbed her by the waist and pulled her to safety against the wall. She buried her face against his chest and felt him wrap his arms around her body, putting his back to the window, sheltering her. He held her that way protectively, while the shots peppered the brick wall of the building and blasted furniture and fixtures into dust inside the room all around them. It sounded like hell on earth. In the middle of that chaos, she laid her head against him, feeling like she had safe harbor in a storm. Suddenly, the deafening noise of the machine gun stopped. The pounding of the rotor blades got a little softer, then softer again as the machine lifted off. She became aware that Lodi was trying to say something to her, but she still couldn't hear him all the way. She looked up at him as though in a dream and studied his lips, finally getting the meaning of his words through her head. They're leaving. Together, they turned their heads and watched the Black Hawk helicopter lift off. There was an insignia painted in gold on the black exterior, the image of an upthrust fist, the letter's flag stenciled underneath. They watched it until it was gone, and then she closed her eyes and sagged against him while her heartbeat pounded in her ears. Christ, it feels good to be in his arms, she thought. She was grateful at that moment to just rest there, breathing him in, letting his strong arms envelop her just to have that comfort. When her racing pulse began to slow, she pulled away from him and saw a smear of red on his chest. She gasped. You're bleeding, she said, and touched the blood-stained fabric of his t-shirt. It's not me. It's you. You're cut. It's on your forehead. Gingerly, he lifted her hair back from her temple and winced. There was an inch-long gash at her hairline. It looks okay. Despite herself, she laughed. Bullshit. She could feel it now, the sear of wounded flesh, now that the immediacy of the threat had lifted and the noise of the helicopter faded into the distance. She looked around for the others. Mary was sitting with Wanda and the teenagers, huddled together on the floor against the wall. Jay was beside them with the open laptop streaming on the floor beside him. They were all right. They looked shaky, but unharmed. Jenna closed her eyes with relief, but Mary had seen the blood on Jenna's face. Rising, Mary went to the first aid cabinet on the wall and found some gauze and antiseptic cream. Kneeling, she held up a lank section of Jenna's blood-soaked hair. The wound was bleeding heavily. You're hurt, Mary said, clucking sympathetically. She reached up and deftly removed a couple of bobby pins from her own hair and used them to pin back Jenna's bangs. Can you walk? Think you can come with me to the bathroom? Jenna stood. Her legs felt shaky, but all right. The backs of her knees were a little weak, but she was on her feet. She offered them a breathy laugh. I think I'm okay, she smiled. 
The two women made their way slowly to the door and out of the council chambers, Jenna leaving, leaning heavily on Mary's arm. All right, so we'll leave it there. We'll be back with part two of chapter 14, Reconfiguring, tomorrow. And I just want to end by saying uh, again how proud I am to be Canadian right now and to be recording this audiobook of Canadian literature um, in the times that we are living in. And uh, I send my best wishes to the convoy and to all the Canadians that are lining the overpasses along its route, praying for peace, praying for freedom, and praying for the end of segregation and division that has divided our country. And it's time for us to move past that now. I think that we are, the tide is shifting, light is winning, stay free.